0: Hello, and welcome again to the Data Dish Podcast from the Illinois Science and Technology Coalition. I am Matt Bragg, Director of Data and Policy here at ISTC. Um, Today on the show, we talk with Professor Brandon Cox from the Southern Illinois School of Medicine uh, to talk about some of her research in hearing loss and restoration. So here's our discussion with Professor Cox. All right, so, um, Brandon Cox, you are Associate Professor of Pharmacology at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. Um, Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Great. So, I want to get into sort of your research efforts and, um, you know, how you became interested in your fields. Um, and then a little bit on your journey. So if we can work kind of back from there. So maybe start with um, just what your research interest is um, and then sort of how you became interested in the field.
1: Sure. So I study hearing loss and regeneration of the specialized sensory cells in the inner ear called hair cells. Um, And hearing loss can be caused by a number of things such as um, ototoxic drugs, Exposure to loud noise is a very common way to have hearing loss and then of course aging. And right now the only treatments that are available are hearing aids and cochlear implants that have some benefit but they don't actually restore normal hearing Um, and it can especially be problematic in a noisy environment like at a restaurant or when there's a party and a group of people are talking. It's hard to discern those conversations versus the background noise. So we are studying um, regeneration. We're trying to get the cells that are left over after these specialized hearing cells, the hair cells are killed, we're trying to get them to regenerate and make new hair cells. And this happens normally in birds and fish and amphibians and other non-mammals. So we're just trying to understand why it doesn't happen in humans and other mammals and how we could potentially overcome those barriers. And I became interested in this work um, during my postdoc training. So after uh, getting my PhD, uh, I was looking for where to do my research fellowship. It's kind of like a residency that medical doctors do before you go out on your own. And I was, for my PhD, I studied um, a receptor that's been uh, been known about since over 100 years ago. and. A lot of the techniques I used were very quantitative, a lot of numbers, a lot of curves, and I was really looking for uh, to learn something new. I wanted to, to learn slightly different field, and I wanted something more visual. You know, every time I gave my data presentations with graphs and line graphs and bar graphs, uh, I would always get questions about, well, I want to see, like, what does it look like? Where are these expressed? And it's just not the kind of work I did, so I kind of had this urge, and I wanted to see things. I wanted to do more imaging. So I I stumbled across an ad for a postdoc position in the hearing field and did some reading and learned about this beautiful spiral structure and these gorgeous confocal images that you can take um, where you label the cells with different antibodies and different colors. Um, And then I was doing the reading, I realized there's a lot of potential here. The hearing field is about 10 to 15 years behind vision and other pain, other sensory systems. There's a lot that we can still learn or we need to learn because it's this very small structure encapsulated bone that is not the easiest thing to work with. You need very specialized training and specialized equipment to study it. So there's a lot of opportunity in the hearing field to ask some really important basic questions. And that's what attracted me to the hearing field. And then I got into regeneration based on some of the projects that I worked on during my fellowship.
0: Very interesting. So you're not originally from Illinois, correct?
1: No, I'm from Virginia.
0: Okay, so what kind of attracted you to the state and to SIU specifically?
1: So uh, to be very honest, moving from a postdoc fellow to faculty position is very competitive, extremely competitive. And the, the friends that I knew that really struggled to get faculty positions had limited themselves geographically to one city or one state for where they were looking for faculty positions. Yeah. So, um, I decided to take the opposite approach and I applied all over the nation. I sent out applications to any university that had a job ad description that I uh, was interested in or felt like I met what they were looking for and and my thought process was, let me put as many uh, fishing lines out there and then and once I hear back from places and they're starting the interview process, then that can be um, you know, more decisive of where, you know, what city or what university is the best fit for me. Um, and so honestly, I never picked Illinois, it picked me. <laughs> so you
0: um,
1: you know, through the interview process, SIU was a great fit for me because um, as you may not know, we actually have a very large group of auditory researchers here um, <laughs> at SIU School of Medicine in Springfield. Um, I'm one of, of seven or eight uh, faculty that study hearing in some shape or form. Mm-hmm. Some people study uh, tinnitus or the ringing in the ears. Others study uh, age-related hearing loss. Um, there's other people that are trying to develop drugs to protect the, the hair cells against noise or ototoxic drugs. And then I'm doing the opposite. I'm trying to take a system that's been damaged and trying to regenerate. So we we all have slightly different focuses, but it's very um, cohesive, large group of people. So that was really attractive to me when I was uh, interviewing.
0: So is that, that's kind of a cluster of hearing research, right, at at SIU Springfield. So was that already there, or sort of, do you know the evolution of that?
1: Yeah, that's been here for decades. So um, one of the founding members of the auditory research group, uh, Dr. Don Kasvari, has been here over 40 years before the building existed. Um, He was one of the first faculty members recruited to SIU School of Medicine when it was created. Um, And then a few years after that, the first founding chair of the otolaryngology department, um, Dr. Conrad Martin, uh, he was a clinician who was very interested in basic science research and hearing research. So he recruited some key clinician scientists as well as some basic scientists to his department. And then through Dr. Martin and Dr. Kaspari, they recruited others with auditory research interests to to build that group. So it's it's been a long-standing history of SIU in Springfield to have an auditory focus. That's and cool. it's very unique. Yeah. There's not many universities that have more than one auditory researcher. There's right. a couple, but not many.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's very cool. I think that's what we see across fields, you know, that kind of natural evolution of you know, research, somebody comes in and does something kind of revolutionary and that attracts other people and it naturally kind of builds and builds. So that's cool to see uh, at SIU. Um, So I know you're still relatively early in your career and you've been described to us as kind of a rising star. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) but, um, you know, when you look back at at the research you've done so far, what's kind of been the, you know, your favorite breakthrough or kind of, um, you know, discovery that's really sort of has you excited about uh, the field and your research.
1: Right, right. Yes. Yeah. So, so my big discovery, and I think what allowed me to to get a faculty position and start my own research group is um, I discovered that if you kill the hair cells in, in the newborn mouse, they'll kill the hair cells right after the mice are born, um, the system will spontaneously regenerate new hmm. hair cells. If you wait until the, the mouse is um, about one week of age, no more regeneration happens. And this was speculated to possibly happen, but there was no definitive proof until the study that I did in my postdoc. And honestly, I kind of stumbled on it myself. I was planning to um, kill hair cells in a really immature cochlea to then try to manipulate the system with with different drugs or different genes to to force the cells to regenerate. Turns out in the controls where I did nothing, there was this spontaneous regeneration that was happening, which was pretty cool. So there was a little bit of serendipity, mm-hmm. um, but I think that's my my big discovery and the one that I'm most proud of and probably the one that I'm most known for um, in my field.
0: Cool, so then what's kind of the next step for you? Where do you go from there, I guess?
1: Right, right, so my lab is, is, is focused on all the questions surrounding the spontaneous regeneration process, the who, what, when, where, how, and why. And then the biggest question is, why does it only happen in this short one-week period after the mouse is born, and why can't we do it in older mice and adult Mm -hmm. mice and eventually in humans? So that's where we're going in the future to try to, to, to make that happen in a more mature structure. But honestly, there's there's thousands and thousands of things that change in the cochlea in that first week after birth. So we don't have the answer yet. Um, but we've had we have made some great discoveries on some of the other questions. So we just published. Um, I think it was part of my uh, biosketch uh, for the Rising Star uh, webpage. We just published a paper in Frontiers of Cellular Neuroscience about the mechanism the how does regeneration happen. And we show that this pathway called NOTCH is critically involved in the spontaneous regeneration pathway, and if you keep that pathway on, no regeneration happens. So you have that pathway has to get turned down during the regeneration process. And, and this pathway NOTCH is just a, um, it's a way the cells communicate with each other to make a mosaic. So anytime you have a mix of different cell types, like in the cochlea, or in the retina, or even in the brain, you have this notch signaling pathway that says, I'm gonna be this kind of cell, and you, my neighbor, are gonna be this other kind of cell. And so that signaling pathway we we, we proved to be uh, critically involved in the regeneration process. And we have a new paper that's currently in revision right now, where we're looking at the who question. So um, after you kill the hair cells, there's a bunch of different uh, cells different types of cells that are left. They're all called supporting cells, but they're slightly different and they have different names. Hmm. So we um, did a technique called fate mapping where you can label a cell with a fluorescent molecule and then trace it over time. So we did that for different types of these supporting cells to see which ones are becoming the regenerated hair cells. Hmm. And we found that some of the supporting cells do it really well and others do it a little bit and others don't do it at all. Right. So um, we're, we're you know, answering some of these more, more specific questions of how is this regeneration process happening. Mm. And the reason that's important is if we know who are the players, who can do this spontaneously, then we can narrow down that list of the thousands of things that are changing as maturation occurs to just what's changing in those few cells. And that will help us better predict and design experiments to get regeneration to happen an older and hopefully an adult cochlea
0: yeah. hmm. very interesting so changing gears a little bit um, in a report that came out last month on university r d and sort of business r d and the whole kind of ecosystem of research and development in the state one of the things that we highlighted was kind of the growing role of university and industry partnerships right kind of coming together to sponsor research and um, you know eventually commercialize new discoveries and products um, maybe, you know, if there are examples in your own work or, or maybe in your field where, you know, those partnerships are, are becoming more influential in research and sort of helping grow research or changing the way uh, research is done in your field, um, you know, is that something that you've done or, or is maybe a goal to, to work with industry, kind of how does that mesh together in your own work?
1: Right. Um, so I currently act as a consultant for two companies right now. <laughs> Uh, One company is a local Illinois-based company called Turner Scientific, based out of Jacksonville, Illinois. Hmm. And um, that company provides um, tests for hearing, as well as histology for any pharmaceutical company or any biotech that wants to determine if the drug that they are studying causes damage to to hearing or Hmm. to the inner ear. And so as a consultant through Turner Scientific, I'm helping to um, oversee some of the histology to the cochlea. So we aren't involved in, you know, designing the research questions or or really knowing much about what the product or the compound is the biotech company is investigating, but we're, you know, analyzing the samples and making sure that uh, this, this compound that could potentially end up in clinical trials is not causing toxicity to the ear. And then my second role as a consultant is with a company called Autonomy out of California. And in that role, I'm more of a content expert consultant. So they are one of many biotech startup companies that have been popping up over the past five to 10 years in the hearing field um, to focus on developing drugs for tinnitus or hearing loss or prevention of hearing loss or stimulating regeneration. And so, as a content expert for them, I do conference calls, um, respond to emails and questions about my thoughts of, you know, a particular paper or, you know, model systems or, you know, uh, ideas that they might have about um, going after a certain pathway. They're just really looking more for my expertise. And so that's all done separately and outside of my role mm-hmm. at SIU School of Medicine. It really has absolutely nothing to do with my research, except obviously. I study hair cell regeneration, and that's what my expertise is for the company. So, you know, we we did have to go through the necessary um, conflict of interest paperwork and management plans. But um, in regards to my personal research, you know, I don't currently have anything right now that I could potentially write a patent for. Mm. However. and that's because I'm, I'm really studying the spontaneous process, right? Yeah. I'm not doing anything to make regeneration happening. I'm just figuring out how does it happen. Right. But the goal is from learning from the spontaneous process, we can develop a drug or a gene therapy to simulate the process in the adult. So in the future, I do think there might be something that um, my lab discovers that would be patentable to then um, progress to uh, industry, and I think these partnerships that I already created with, um, especially the biotech company in the hearing industry phase, uh, of space, um, you know, would be a great opportunity to do some sponsored research with them, or perhaps they would be interested in licensing a patent that I right. um, had create. But that's you know, that's down the road, that's in the future.
0: Sure, sure so i mean maybe taking a more of a thirty thousand foot view of kind of commercialization and you know this is something that we've been tracking for a decade now kind of the growth of you know university research you know being commercialized and sort of you know pivoting to you know be released to the wider market um you know what's your view on kind of how that's changed university research Um, i think you know maybe from our point of view it's you know, that that gap from university research to a product hitting the market is becoming smaller and smaller. Um, You know, is that something you're seeing in your own field? Um, Is that something that, you know, you mentioned kind of um, looking to do that in the future? Um, Sort of how do you view that whole relationship and sort of how it's changed university research?
1: Yeah, so I definitely think that it's getting um, much more common uh, for a university developed product to, to make it into industry or into trials. Um, You know, I came from, I did my Ph.D. at Georgetown University, Mm -hmm. and you may not be aware, but Allegra was originally discovered by a faculty member in my old department. And so Mm -hmm. that was, you know, many decades ago that then made it to the clinic and now is, I think, even generic. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... um, the HPV vaccine, the first one, um, I think it's called Guardia or something like that. Huh. Um, that was also discovered by a, um, or initially came from a, a lab at Georgetown. So I was always aware of this, even as a graduate student. Um, but now as a faculty member, I you know, I, I hear about it a lot more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we get emails and have seminars and sessions from our tech transfer office Um, several times a year reminding us if there's anything potentially patentable, talk to them first before you present it at a conference (laughs) and those types of things. So it is more in the forefront. It's more in my thought process of, is this something I should be talking to the Tech Transfer Office about Mm -hmm. or is this not? So I I think as far as changing research, it's not necessarily changing the research questions that I'm asking. Mm -hmm. It's changing more of my thought process of should I be pursuing this in addition to my my research questions? Um, And there are quite a few patents here at SIU related to hearing, um, where one in particular, one compound in particular um, is in clinical trials at the moment, but I believe the clinical trial is funded by a grant that the investigator has herself, not Mm -hmm. through an industry partner, but it very likely could could transition to an industry partner in the future. does that answer your question? Yeah, no,
0: that's great. <laughs> okay. um, I think you're kind of reflecting what we're seeing just in terms of, you know, even if a professor isn't going out to do research that directly ends in a product that's commercialized, I think it's becoming one of those things where, you know, they're more aware of it, right? It's, it's something where, right. you know, maybe another professor's research kind of comes in and touches on that and, and it gets, you know, sort of swallowed up into that. So I think there are lots of different avenues that, that it's affecting now. So that's great. Um, the last thing I have is, again, kind of um, backing up and, and looking at university research more broadly. Um, I'm wondering, you know, just in your time, kind of how um, the landscape of university research in your own field has changed um, and kind of, you know, where you see it going in the future.
1: Right. So in my field of, of hearing, I, I feel like the research has really um Expanded. I mean, even since I was a, a postdoc fellow, I feel like there's more and more labs that are that are focusing on hearing, and absolutely more biotech companies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a really big push to gene therapy. Um, so there there is a clinical trial right now to try to use gene therapy to, to stimulate regeneration. So that's currently happening. I believe it's still in phase one. Um, and there's a lot of really fantastic research in animal models where they've used um, gene therapy to correct uh, congenital mutations. So there's some people who are born with hearing loss because there's this mutated gene and they never hear. And there's been some really fantastic work where they can correct that specific problem in a mouse model and Mm -hmm. then the animals are able to hear. And so I think there's a really great opportunity, um, and I know there's at least one company founded on that premise of going after gene therapy for congenital hearing loss and I think there, there's a lot of potential there. There's also in my field, um, a, a relatively new understanding of uh, noise induced hearing loss. So it, it used to be thought that if the noise wasn't too loud, you might lose your hearing temporarily, like mm-hmm. right after a concert, it sounds kind of hollowly and fuzzy sure. and then it comes back to normal. Right. And so that temporary hearing loss was originally thought to be benign and causes no uh, permanent consequences or any permanent changes to the cochlea. Uh, but recent work has shown that that's not actually true.
0: Hmm.
1: It, um, there are um, about 10 to 15 connections between each hair cell to the neuron. They're called synapses, right? And so what the study showed is that when you have these mild noise exposures that are supposed to be benign, you're actually losing some of those synapses and they don't grow back. And so if you have a, a cell or, or a sound sensing cell that's losing some of its connections, it's like pulling off the wires of a microphone, right? And so you pull off too many and you eventually aren't gonna be able to hear anything mm-hmm. or be able to have the microphone functioning. And so that's something that's kind of new in the field. And so there's a big push of how can we protect those synapses or how can we regenerate the synapses? Because a cell's not dead, The neuron's still alive, the hair cell's still alive, they just aren't connecting to each other. Hmm. So making that connection re-established is perhaps a little bit simpler than regenerating a whole cell. Mm -hmm. So that's a a new um, avenue of research in my field that I think is more likely to get to the clinic faster. Hmm. I think we'll be able to um, develop things faster because like I said, it's a little bit less complex than recreating the whole system. You're just trying to make the connections again or Mm -hmm. protect the connections from
0: from being destroyed. Great, very interesting. I'll uh, keep that in mind next time I'm at a concert.
1: Yeah, Uh, wear (laughs) earplugs.
0: There you go. Um, So Professor Cox, I wanna thank you uh, for spending some time with us today uh, and coming on the podcast. Um, You know, it's been great. I think, you know, we were very excited to have you as one of our researchers to know and kind of, you know, have somebody in the hearing field uh, was very exciting. So um, thanks for that and thanks for your time today.
1: You're welcome, my pleasure.
0: Our thanks again to Professor Cox for coming on the podcast. Again, she was one of our researchers to know. The full list of researchers can be found on our website, istcoalition.org/data. There you can also find our Illinois Innovation Index. Um, our latest issue was on research and development in the state, including at the academic level. Be sure to check that out on the website. Um, Also, stay tuned for more episodes where we talk to researchers and leaders from around the state's tech and innovation community. Um, Until then, thanks for listening.